When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. Now, if you haven't listened yet, uh, along with the release of, of this new pod, we put out, uh, I put out an update just uh, giving a little bit of updates of what's been happening with the pod, future directions. And one of the things you may have noticed from the intro is that I am very, very, very happy to announce that I'm uh, officially a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network or the PPN. Um, if you're looking for more info, pharmacypodcast.net. It's the largest collaborative network of pharmacists in the podcast realm. I'm very excited to be working with Todd Yuri and his team. There's going to be much more to come for that, but very, very excited to kind of announce that officially. Um, and then, of course, we can't forget about our OG friends, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. Now, today we're dipping our toes into the toxicology waters here with an awesome guest, Jimmy Leonard, joining me to discuss the management of calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdoses. Um, now, before we before we get going any further, um, just a note or almost like a PSA. Um, obviously, based on the nature of this episode, we will be discussing um, suicides and overdoses um, throughout the episode. So this is definitely a sensitive topic. So just a disclaimer for all that that will that will certainly be discussed um, going into going into this episode and just kind of um, use your discretion. Obviously, this can be a a really, really touchy topic for for some of us. And so just wanted to give everyone one kind of last heads up before we go any further here. Uh, now, our awesome guest, Jimmy, is a clinical toxicologist at the Maryland Poison Center and part-time emergency medicine pharmacist at UMMC and Northwest Hospital in Baltimore County. He graduated from Washington State University, did residency at Providence St. Peter Hospital in Olympia, Washington, and then finished his toxicology fellowship at the Maryland Poison Center. You can find him on Twitter at Leonard JBRX. Jimmy, thanks for joining me today. How are you? Great. Thanks, Nick, for having me. Excited to be here. I think it's a lot of fun, um, our topic that we have at the end today. So obviously, we're going to be getting into overdoses and things, but one of the biggest ideas that I've had on the pod is if I was ever lucky enough to be joined by a toxicologist, we 
I wanted to discuss things that happened in mainstream media, specifically today talking about movies like if this happened in real life, what would actually happen? So very excited at the end of the episode to to go in depth a little bit with that with Jimmy. But then obviously our our main course, the Thanksgiving dinner here is really discussing our our management of beta blocker and calcium channel blocker overdoses. So thank you so much again. I think it's probably best to maybe start generally in kind of the the toxic like the toxicology realm and just say like thinking about beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, what is considered like a toxic dose or an overdose? Um, is there like a set number? Does it depend on the agent? Yeah. So it really depends on the drug, right? There were a, a series of articles published a while ago that are called are one or two pill dangerous. Um, you know, essentially looking at one pill killers with children. And really they looked at, you know, some of the agents and looked at things like diltiazem, you know, the, the biggest tablet that you can have and is a little kid going to get into trouble with one or two dose, right? And so we have actually referral doses for a lot of agents for pediatrics that say, yeah, there's some risk here. It's probably not lethal at one tablet or two tablets. Um, but when you get into talking about adults and self-harm attempts, realistically, a half a month supply, so 15 tabs of high doses of anything is going to get you into trouble, right? So if you're talking amlodipine, 10 milligrams, right? When you're in that 150 milligram range, you're going to be progressing to critical care level interventions, right? Um, same thing with you know, there's one unique example of propranolol, right? So propranolol is dosed at that 80, 120, 160 a day extended release. Um, and that's usually for hypertension, you know, AFib, maybe, maybe off-label for migraines. But when you're talking about the 10 milligram TID, which is often used for anxiety, some other sort of, um, it, you know, performance anxiety commonly, um, that you're, it's hard to get into trouble with that, right? So even if you have, you know, 30 tabs or 90 tabs, you're still only talking about 900 milligrams as opposed to 30 of the 160s, they're your four grams plus, right? And you're going to get into trouble. So I would say that the, the toxic dose is, you know, half a month supply, a month supply, you're getting into trouble. And you mentioned, right, that, that you work at, at the Poison Center and things. Give us a PSA for, for everybody. What's that Poison Center number in case anybody has oh, yeah. issues? That number is always 1-800-222-1222. And again, 800-222-1222. I love that. I feel like I feel like we just sold some jewelry or something, right? Like lines are open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think actually, if you text poison to seven nine seven nine seven nine, it should send you a contact card. So it'll uh, just lock it in your phone. That's awesome. Um, now you know, kind of sticking in kind of the, the broader sense of of toxicology and thinking of kind of like our our gastric um, kind of decontain like. Uh, decontamination use here, activated charcoal. Are we still using this? Is this kind of a, a thing of the past? What's our what's our thought? Should we be kind of pushing this if, if patients come into the ED? Yeah, so uh, 
we could spend like 30 hours discussing activated charcoal <laughs> if you really wanted to. Um, it can be a very, very nuanced discussion. When it really comes down to it is if the patient has uh, either a controlled airway or is neurologically intact, I'm fine giving charcoal, right? Most of the agents that we're talking about are going to be extended release, right? Diltiazem, verapamil, propranolol, dipedipine, right? Amlodipine is the only one that isn't extended release. Um, and so I would say, yeah, give charcoal, right? We've, we've seen studies where they uh, found a pharmacobezor in somebody's gut when they did autopsy, right? We had a case of, gosh, I think it was propranolol, um, extended release that she'd been in the outside hospital for 36 hours. She came to our hospital. We did like NG to suction and we're pulling out propranolol beads from her stomach wow. at 36 hours. Yeah. So I'm fine with giving charcoal as long as the airway is protected. You're never going to find RCT benefit, but the theory is there. Now, when we, when you think about, like, when I think about, like, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, and I think even our, my, like, the order sets may reflect this, I think a lot of times we kind of almost think of them in, in the same group, and I think a lot of times they may get grouped in, in the, disc, and the management may be similar, but there are nuances, like, for example, there's actually guidelines for the treatment of calcium channel blocker overdoses, but they don't mention beta blockers or anything in there, so, Jimmy, can we... For, you know, we'll say for the majority of these of these meds, is it appropriate to be grouping these together and kind of thinking of their management similarly? Or do we kind of need to have a, a split in the road and discuss them differently, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers? We lump them. Honestly, we just say, look, tox, bradycardia with hypotension, you calcium channel beta blocker, Right. And we're going to be doing really similar things up front and recognizing that some of our later management, maybe we'll need to, you know, be more aggressive on our dextrose management. Right. The early on, maybe we'll say, oh, we're not going to give glucagon so much if it's a calcium channel blocker. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, and, but yeah, I, we just put the two together. Right. And I think our order sets are, and our, our guidelines really reflect that. I recognize that they haven't done guidelines um, for both of the beta blocker and calcium channel blockers, but everybody just really treats them the same. So before we get into kind of the toxicology management and, and that side of things, you know, because um, because a lot of times just logistically those therapies can take some time to actually get to the bedside. So in the meantime, or when they initially present, we may not know what's happening. Do we treat their hemodynamic like abnormalities as we normally would? We treat their bradycardia as we normally would, their hypotension, or are there nuances that we kind of need to keep in mind? So uh, everybody's getting a small bolus, right? One or two liters. Vasopressors at the bedside are readily available. You can get them in the ED. You can get them in the ICU, right? They're in your Omnicell. They're in your Pixis, what have you. Um, I'd say both agents, you're going to be going through calcium, right? So they're readily available as well. The one thing that you might not get much mileage out of is atropine. And it's really because your heart basically says like, hey, 
Um, I'm Brady Dakardic. We don't need any colder to cone, right? So it's already shut down that pathway. Now, don't get me wrong. Are you going to try atropine? Yes. Are they going to respond to atropine? Probably not, right? Um, but but really early and aggressive vasopressors is really the right way to get um, to get management started. All right. Well, let's start dipping our toes in here. So when we're thinking about obviously IV calcium, right? When we're dipping into our our calcium channel blockers and things. Um, so you know, drug shortages aside, which I think all of us are dealing with at the at the current moment. Is there a is there a preferred salt? Do we need to do IV push versus IV infusion, or is it just hey we need to get calcium and we need to get it to them quick? Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm a fan of the the calcium that is available to give to the patient, um, fully recognizing that you can do gluconate really easily peripherally. Right, there are concerns about sclerosing. Um, the veins with the calcium chloride. So, I mean, if you have calcium glucane, it's available, go ahead and just give it, right? Um, I generally will only recommend um, about three grams max for our pushes when we are um, giving it, and that's three grams of chloride equivalent or nine of gluconate. Um, before you start checking an iCal, they're not going to be hypocalcemic, but there are plenty of deaths published with a calcium of 30 because somebody got overly aggressive on their calcium infusion. So I just want to be careful there and actually make sure you're monitoring the patient, right? Um, there are a couple of odd cases that um, I've read where somebody actually had hypocalcemia, but it's not, that's not the situation, right? Maybe it was dilutional. Maybe it was something weird going on. Um, just bad drop. It's really about um, just trying to get that calcium in, right? Trying to um, help overcome some blockade with an electrochemical gradient. And so if I'm hearing you right, we almost treat that like, like we're not checking calcium, right? We're just going to give it. So almost like if you see EKG issues and you want to give two grams of mag to, to, you know, protect that, that, um, your, the changes that you're seeing on the EKG, it's kind of similar that like, we don't care what the calcium is. The lab is, we just want to get, get it into them quickly. Right. Yep. Don't have to know what it is. Just say if they're bradycardic and hypotensive from, a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker, and you can definitely give it, right? And the idea being, like I said before, and especially when you push calcium, right? When you push any electrolyte, it travels as a bolus, it slowly dissipates, and it just presents to those myocytes as a large extracellular ball or a concentration of calcium and flows through it every time that channel opens, if that channel opens. Now let's kind of get into the into the heavy hitter here and kind of the thing I think that um, we probably have the most information, nuances, and also, you know, pharmacy interventions and, and things to monitor um, as we think about this kind of um, high-risk therapy, but that is our um, high-dose insulin. Um, now, kind of starting off in terms of, you know, when you look at like in the literature, the dosing 
is a wide range um, of anywhere from, you know, one unit per kilo per hour all the way up to 10. And so I think most of what I've seen, um, there's a general dose recommendation from the literature, but what's your, what's your general process in terms of like your dosing of the high dose of the insulin therapy? I always just start them at one and say, look, most people settle in somewhere around three, right? I, I mean, I will recommend one and next time I follow up there, maybe on 0.5, right? And so we just say, all right, just, let's just keep going up, be more aggressive with it. Um, and as people start to see results, they get more and more aggressive and more and more comfortable with it, right? If they're seeing, you know, blood pressure coming up, their norepi and epi doses are dropping down, their blood glucose is maybe still hanging out at 550. They're like, oh, I can keep this up. I can keep going up on the dose, right? Um, you start to run into some real fluid issues with patients, though. Um, I mean, we have, you know, most hospitals have 100 cc, like 100 units per 100 cc's as a bag that's standard, right? Maybe they have 250 per 250. Um, I think some of them have 500 per 500. That's actually specifically for poisoning. Um, and really when you're at five units per kilo per hour, that can be 500 cc's an hour or, or better really quickly. Um, so yeah. And three is probably like a good, you know, settled in dose. We've had some discussion about whether you should be pushing it in some patients, right? Cause we always recommend a bolus one unit per kilo is a bolus kind of considered, Oh, could we bolus it again as opposed to just increasing the rate? There's really no evidence for it. And, you know, I've kind of proposed it and never gotten any traction. So for now we just kind of stick to what's out there and what's published. Yeah. And when you say, when you say three, right, that's, that's three units per kilo per hour. Um, yes. And now when you mention. Yeah right? That, that they start at one and then they, they end up on three, for example. So how, what guidance do you give, uh, you know, the bedside clinicians of how do we actually titrate this? Like, what are we titrating it to? It's generally titrated to math, right? And um, so we think that insulin works through, we know that it works through three separate ways, right? So um, one thing that it does is your heart primarily uses free fatty acids, right? With under a time of stress, it moves to utilize quick source of fuel, glucose. It's not very good at utilizing glucose, but it gives us the old college try, right? So when we give this high doses of insulin, it, it works through one receptor where it actually like enhances glucose uptake, right? So that's just moving your glucose transporter channels pulling it into the, into the myocytes and they can um, increase their fuel. The other thing is it seems to help by increasing calcium cycling through one that has to do with that glucose transporter um, and then another transporter as well. And then the last thing that it does is it, it seems to cause um, vasodilation in the microvasculature. 
And specifically what we're talking about is um, it seems to induce nitric oxide synthase. And if it does that in the um, coronary vasculature, you're actually enhancing perfusion and blood flow to the heart. All good things, right? And so we kind of get like a, um, a, an inotropic effect out of it, not a lot of chronotropic effect. But when patients do and when they respond, you see their vasopressor doses just heal off. I mean, they're going from high doses, and by high doses, I mean norepi at three mics per kilo per minute, right? Or one, one's probably a reasonable, like, oh, that's a really high dose. Um, and epi at, you know, 0.51, and they're just, they're just coming off really quickly. Um, and the titration we recommend is every, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, because that's about how long we think it takes to really work um, and for every adjustment as well. And so then, you know, building off of that, what you're saying is almost, you know, the sickest patients that we're starting this on are going to be on vasopressors. And so when you initiate it, the first step is weaning down. And so at a certain point, they're not on any vasopressors and they're just on this high dose insulin therapy if things go correct. Or is that is that kind of pie in the sky? That uh, is probably a patient that I would say, you, you should just stop your insulin and, and go back on to mild dose of vasopressor. Um, so no, uh, you know, pretty much everybody is going to be on a combination of vasopressor and insulin. Um, there is, boy, extrapolating animal data to humans is like the most dangerous thing in medicine. Pretty much, they, apparently it's unethical to poison people and see what happens and then treat them. So we have a lot of dogs that get poisoned. Um, so there was a dog study that looked at, gosh, I want to say it was like cerebral oxygenation. Um, and they combined vasopressors and insulin um, and actually found that that combination was better than either alone. Right. So the, the combination plus like most of these agents, whether they're cardiac toxin or not, are going to have vasodilatory effects. So you're really going to still need that vasoconstriction that you're going to get from norepi, right? Um, and honestly, if you've got a patient that is stable on a moderate dose of a vasopressor, I probably wouldn't even necessarily go to high-dose insulin just because it can be so logistically challenging, yes. right? You've got, yeah. I, I mean, we had one patient that was on Gosh, I think she was 300 units an hour, and the only thing they could make were 100 unit bags. So that nurse, it was two nurses in there every 20 minutes swapping out bags, right? Because they're not going to run them from two separate pumps. How much, how much more dangerous could we possibly get, right? So, um, yeah, it, if you have like a moderate dose of, of vasopressor, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even go up to high dose insulin. Yeah, that's that's certainly a way to make some enemies in the in the main pharmacy. <laughs> oh, dude, all I, that compounding I, almost every time. Oh yeah, and almost every time I'm like, can you guys concentrate the insulin? And it always happens at like seven forty-five on a Friday night. It's maybe like a per diem person downstairs, and they're like, no. No, I, I'm aware. Maybe no. <laughs> like, 
I've tried lots of times. And it's always, we have protocols. No, we're not concentrating anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that call happens at 745 on the East Coast. In the Midwest, that generally happens around 11 o'clock when I'm alone in the hospital. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, you mentioned no one wants to mess with it. Insulin's such a high, high, you know, risk medicine. No one wants to make any changes to any of their med safety plans or anything with that. Um, now, we're mentioning high-dose insulin, right, and getting that started. So, obviously, in tandem with that, you know, we don't want everyone to become hypoglycemic because that obviously has consequences as well. So um, we need some sort of dextrose source coming in. Um, now, the question is, is that, is there any kind of set, maybe like weight-based or dose-based dextrose, or is it kind of, hey, you start with like a D10 or D20 infusion and you titrate to effect? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And um, I feel like we end up chasing it a lot more with beta blockers. So calcium channel blockers um, block L-type calcium channels, right? L-type calcium channels are in the heart, they're in the vasculature, they're in the pancreas. Um, and importantly, in the pancreas, they actually halt insulin release, right? So we can kind of risk assess patients and say, oh, they're hyperglycemic. They're bradycardic, they're hypotensive. This is probably a calcium channel blocker, right? Um, and I think the group out of Arizona did a study a couple of years ago where they looked at um, blood glucose concentrations at presentation. And they said, look, if they were over 180, they were more likely to progress to needing vasopressors, high dose insulin, or death. Um, they're in the 120 range, they didn't progress there. And then the patients actually got up to blood glucoses of like 330, right? Um, and this is often without any kind of supplemental dextrose. And some of the patients, by the time that like they've gone through their norepi and their epi or their va and their vasopressin, they're getting going, their blood glucose is already 500, right? And that's just because of all of these other effects that are going on. Um, so when I go ahead and say, start out your high-dose insulin. If you're going to start it and your blood glucose is under 300, I just say give a push of dextrose D50 if you can. Um, if it's, you know, 150, you're given two pushes. You're given two amps or 100 cc's of, D, of D50, right? And then um, try to avoid hypoglycemia, right? Try to get somewhere in the, like the 130, 170, 180 range right? Under 200, um, you can start backing off because you're going to have fluid issues. You're going to have fluid issues. And dextrose is just one of the ways that we can have fluid issues. Um, some people will start them off empirically as like 0.25 to half a gram per kilo per hour at a starting dose um, and titrate from there, right? In the ED, it's generally going to be your push and then maybe D10. Once you get a central line, D20, you can make a D50 drip. That's great. Um, we've had some hospitals do D70 drip. And I think John Cole's group out of Minnesota actually recommends that, which is fantastic because we had a lady, I think she was on D10 at like 700 an hour. And then they put her on D70 at 70 an hour. I said, that's the one. <laughs> Let's do that again. Uh, so if you make your own TPNs in hospital, you might actually readily have access yeah. to it. Um, but if you don't, you don't. Right. And so it's hit and miss. 
So a lot of what you're describing sounds like it could be a logistical nightmare, especially if you haven't necessarily done this. So I think this is less for our big academic centers and more for some of our kind of smaller community or kind of sister hospitals. Is it if you're getting a call from one of those hospitals and they do not have a high dose insulin like protocol for their hospital, is this something that they do you think it's safe for them to initiate without that? Or do you think if we're doing risk benefit that it um, logistically and safety wise, if there's no protocol, it can be really challenging to implement and maybe we should not do it in those cases. What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. Um, just do it. Right. We, I mean, poison centers have been consulting on like critical access, small community hospitals for 60, 70 years. Right. And why we haven't been using high dose insulin for that whole time we really don't, we don't discriminate. We will send over everything we have for you to get the patient going, right? Um, and trying to stabilize on at least some sort of dose of high-dose insulin, getting over that two to three unit per kilo per hour can definitely be difficult and it's because we're running into fluid issues, right? We're talking about patients who are getting, if they're 100 kilos, they're getting 300 an hour just from that plus their, you know, high doses of vasopressors plus their dextrose. And if it was an unknown, you know, unclear reason for why they came in, maybe they've already gotten, you know, vancomycin and pitaz and shall we list all the rest of the things that they could possibly <laughs> get before that point, right? I mean, they've gotten huge amounts of fluid and we're talking leaders in the first day, you know? So, but yeah, I think it makes sense to get it going. Right. Um, it can be a little bit of a logistic mess, but if you have a team that's really engaged, really on board with it and really wants to get it going, they can. And of course you can always reach out to a, a, a center to say like, Hey, is this somebody that we should transfer to? Um, you know, are they decompensating despite our good, our best efforts? And, and for those who have never, you know, worked with the poison center or any of the, of the toxicologists who work there. I mean, they're amazing. Like they, they walk you through everything. They check in on patients multiple times a day. So this isn't me just saying this because, because Jimmy, a toxicologist is on the pod. I've worked with them in Georgia, Maryland, Indiana. They're all fantastic. And if you're trying to do this by yourself, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Their resources are plentiful. They walk you through everything. Incre extremely intelligent. So really, like, if, if you're going down this realm, you need to be calling a poison center no matter what, especially if you don't have any of these protocols or things in place. Um, now... You know, we we know some of the adverse effects with insulin. Obviously, the hypoglycemia is one of the big ones, but we know some of the electrolyte shifts that can happen as well. So if we're thinking of like potassium or blood glucose, do we have minimum values at which we will start? You know, you mentioned, hey, our sugar's only 150. We'll give two amps of D50 to go. But I'm coming from the perspective of like with DKA, for example, if our values are lower than a certain number, we will we will stop the drip and give things and then restart it. Obviously, a different indication here. Are there times that we need to pause insulin or are we just aggressively repleting if we see some of those adverse effects? 
aggressive repletion, aggressive, <laughs> aggressive, and, and realistically with the highest concentration you possibly can, right? So if you're giving potassium, you need to be giving 20 and 50, right? I, don't, don't push a bullet of potassium, of course. Please. <laughs> please, please don't do that. Um, but 20 and 50, right? Running them over an hour and, um, you know, generally I'll say you can, you, you can get by with permissive hypokalemia, right? If they're getting down to like the two, eight range, like you should probably, probably supplement that. Um, maybe even if there's a three, like, all right, let's get it going. Right. Start our, start our 20 bag. Right. Remember it's all shifting a hundred percent of it is just a shift. Um, and these patients, it will shift back after all said and done. So <laughs> what goes, what goes out must come back. <laughs> what goes in must come back out. And um, patients will have persistent hyperkalemia for several days afterwards, if you're not careful. Um, so yeah, you know, somewhere in that range, um, hypophos I think is one that's forgotten. Oh yeah. Almost every single time. Right. And I'm just like, Oh, they've been doing this for how long? All right, let's check a FOSS. Oh, it's 1.7. All right, let's start. Let's work on that one, right? Um, stopping the infusion sounds like a good idea. I don't really think it matters if you've already put like, you know, a thousand <laughs> units into this patient. Like they've, they've developed acute kidney injury, right? Because they were hypotensive at one point. Kidney's really important for clearing insulin. Um, so you can stop it, but it's not going to stop. Um, so I just say, no, nope, just power through, you know, supplement, give more dextrose if that's what you're dealing with. Um, but also recognize that a lot of these, um, a lot of these patients, it'll be symptomatic, lowish potassium, right? And we're monitoring them very frequently. I mean, general recommend Q1 hour until they're stable, then Q6 for potassium, right? Point of care blood glucose is like Q15, stabilize them on a dose, Q30. Um, I will say that a lot of times, though, when patients start out, their blood glucose is so high that nobody's even that concerned, right? I had one one case that was that was fantastic. Lady had been on, she'd overdosed on amlodipine, right? She'd been taking, um, gosh, I think they were on like a D5 drip for a while, High-dose insulin at 0.5 units per um, kilo per hour for, I don't know, six or seven hours. Blood glucose, five, like 585. And they said, all right, we're going to stop our D5. It's totally reasonable, right? And I called and said, hey, talk to the resident. Go up to one unit. Okay, he does that. Call him back an hour later. Go up to two units. All right, call him back an hour later. Go up to three units. Does that. Call him back an hour later. He's like, we already went to five. We're on board with this. Her epi went from 0.7 to 0.1. Her norepi dropped significantly too, so we are with you. And then it was another four hours before they had to start supplemental dextrose because she was still so hyperglycemic. For like nine hours on massive doses of insulin, right? And part of that has to do with you really saturate most of your insulin receptors at 0.1 units per kilo, right? So that your 10 that you give for somebody for DKA, that's saturating most of your insulin receptors. 
Then beyond that, you're moving into the other effects. So you don't necessarily see the same risk of hypoglycemia um, that you would expect beyond that dose. So when we're using high-dose insulin therapy and like how do we how do we get off of that therapy? Do we simply discontinue it? Do we down titrate it to off? What's our what's our strategy there? That's uh, um, a good question. And this is in my experience, which is a very dangerous phrase, but <laughs> Seems to uh, seems to pan out a lot in toxicology, <laughs> in my experience. Um, first, we'll talk about when you stop. Right, so um, essentially, once you get to two to three days, which is about the average duration for most patients to be on high dose insulin, you have supported the patient through the peak drug concentration. Right, they are um, they have metabolized off a bunch of the drug. Right. And you're starting to see their vasopressors start to get titrated, right? So you're no longer on your norepi at three mics per kilo per minute. Your vasopressin, your epi, all the things are starting to come down as they're just globally starting to support themselves. You can start to like titrate your insulin at that point, right? And most of the time what we do is we just say, all right, drop it in half, wait six hours, drop it in half again. Um, one really good marker, though, that you have um, recovered from the calcium channel blocker poisoning is that one of the calcium channels in your pancreas is no longer blocked, right? So we'll have patients who will just be chugging along, everything fixed rate, and all of a sudden their blood glucose goes from 180 to 100 to 70, and they're just, you know, you say, oh, what happened? Did, did mm-hmm. you know, did we have extravasation, somebody adjust something, but no, it means that your pancreas is starting to say like, Hey, <laughs> I know what to do with all this dextrose, release more insulin. insulin. Yeah. And, right. And then your blood glucose is just like, Oh, it's kind of overwhelmed, right? Everything, you know, you've released your own endogenous source and just plummets. Right. And so we say, Oh, okay. Poisoning is resolving. That is a good sign. The patient is starting to improve. Right. Um, when we go ahead and drop, the dose, like I said before, drop it in half, wait six hours, drop it in half again, right? So if you start at 10, go to five, go to two, and then just say like, all right, we've been on this dose for six hours. We can probably just cut it in half. Recognizing that patients are still going to be hyperinsulinemic for a long time, right? Especially if they've got renal uh, or acute kidney injury from this, um, it's going to be a while, right? Um, the biggest thing, though, is you do not stop your dextrose. That doesn't stop at the same time, right? Patients will be hypoglycemic for a while after all this insulin is hanging around. But, yeah. The other thing is, like, when they're getting down to a moderate dose of a vasopressor, I just say, like, look, remove the most log- the biggest logistical issue here, which is going to be your high-dose insulin, right? ICU teams, ED teams very comfortable with vasopressors, right? The number of physicians comfortable with high-dose insulin is very slim, right? And the number of nurses comfortable with high-dose insulin is very slim. And the likelihood that you have both of them together at the same time is, you know, it almost never happens, right? So 
if you can pull off something that everybody's a little uncomfortable with, I think that's a good idea, right? Don't get me wrong. I think that I think the treatment works really well. It's just once we've resolved, let's start pulling that back and just move to what everybody's comfortable with. Now, before high dose insulin really hit the, you know, kind of main stage per se, I feel like a, a one of the bigger advanced treatments was intralipid therapy. Um, when we're thinking of these, um, the management of these overdoses and you know, I've mentioned the the calcium channel blocker um, toxicity guidelines, and they actually specifically recommend lipid emulsion therapy if the patient arrests or is peri-arresting, like we're chemically coding or where we think they're about to. So is this your general practice for how you use intralipid therapy? Is this a therapy that you routinely recommend in these cases? Yeah, so... Um, this is a really controversial area in the world of critical care, EM, um, and probably less controversial now in toxicology. So with any kind of toxicology specialist, right, be it MedTox, ClinTox, or C-SPIs, um, most people have moved to, if the patient has a pulse, you're probably not giving intralipids. Right. And there were, there were guidelines that were put out a couple of few years ago, um, by the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. And they basically said, you know, bupivacaine and, um, pulseless. Yes. Everything else. No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. Sounds good. Um, and it's, if a patient is arrested, it's, it's not, like, I think it's totally reasonable, especially if it's something that um, is a really um, fat-soluble calcium channel blocker. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense if they've arrested. Peri-arrested, oof, that's where you get into, that's where you get into um, more trouble, right? So, uh, we've had... You know, if a patient is at, at the ACMO center, right, which is kind of an early thing, if we say like, hey, this patient is at risk of dying, um, you should consider transfer to tertiary care. And they get over there and they get up to be watched for it. it you know, we've had the discussion of, well, maybe it'll prevent them from going on to ACMO. And I say, yeah, maybe as long as you kind of limit your dose, you know, it's it is concerning because it might clog up the oxygenator, right? Mm -hmm. And the doc says, that's fine. I can change out the oxygenator. I'm not terribly concerned. Um, and then the other, so it's like, oh, maybe it'll prevent them going ECMO. If it doesn't, you know, it might interfere with the circuit. Let's, you know, it's a risk benefit. I just say like, if you want to try it, it's, you know, sure. Give it a try. As long as you're doing limited dosing. Um, we've had a couple of deaths. Um, some near misses with like really high doses of intralipids, um, where things have just, um, not had good stop times or good stop, like max volumes on them, right? We generally recommend a maximum of 10 uh, milliliters per kilogram, uh, cause you can develop ARDS if you have much higher, if much higher doses than that. Um, and so we've had some that have been 
higher doses. And so we try to like avoid that. That's the biggest thing. Um, the literature and the, and the history of it is, is um, really interesting, right? Um, Guy Weinberg is uh, anesthesiologist who studied it pretty extensively, really started a lot of the um, lipid rescue um, stuff. And then there's just been a lot of published case reports, right? Um, and a lot of the case reports said, hey, we give intralipids and this person got rocked or this person, you know, had a really rapid decrease in their blood pressure or uh, their vasoactive needs and their blood pressure came up. And the question is, would you have submitted that if it didn't happen? Right. And then would the like editor have said, yes, let's publish this. You gave an intervention and nothing happened. Right. So <laughs> overwhelming publication bias. Um, there is a group of some people who are fairly skeptical of the intervention, which I'm fairly skeptical of the intervention myself, um, where they basically looked at all the poison center deaths and said, all right, can we find where they have intralipid was used? Right. And then they looked at it to say like, oh, was there any improvement? When was it given in the therapeutic course? Right. And, um, these, they all died. So it was 460 or 459 deaths. So we know that it didn't work to save the life, right? And that really offsets all of the like positive published case reports. Um, so now we kind of have more of a balance in the literature. Uh, I, I will say there are a lot of cases where like the patient hits the door, they get a, a dose of glucagon, which we'll have to talk about a little bit more. And then like oh, yeah. they get lipids, they get lipids right after that. And I'm like, Oh, Okay, well, let's, let's turn them on the rest of you. <laughs> um, you know, we kind of we joke about it, like, you do two years of toxicology fellowship, and you're like, supportive care and benzos, right? Um, there's not a lot of antidotes for things, and so we do our best to, like, point our specific supportive care at, you know, at the mechanism of, of toxicity. Um, but a lot of things, they just think, like, oh, antidote, fix. We are going to fix the patient, and, heal back on that so yeah well you mentioned benzos but you didn't mention bicarb i thought that's also on like the the tox mount rushmore yeah so um <laughs> i guess if it was propranolol if this is a propranolol specific discussion we would say oh it has some sodium channel blockade so we could give bicarb you probably overcome some of that blockade sure there's also naloxone right um when i when i started my uh fellowship director gave me a nice algorithm that was like is the patient moving yes should they be moving yes do nothing should they not be moving benzos right <laughs> are they not moving and they should be narcan <laughs> <laughs> now you you mentioned what the what the max dose is um what's your like the the 10 cc's per kilo but like what's like our typical like starting dose if we're using the intralipid therapy yeah, so I would do a 1.5 cc per kilo bolus, and that's 20% intralipids. Um, I know there have been some shortages periodically. A lot of people, I think, have been reserving like a bag for, you know, poisoning, right? Some places have it, which they do. It goes to the OR, right? Anesthesia has it. Um, but we do the 1.5 cc per kilo bolus, 0.25 cc per kilo per minute as a continuous infusion. I think ACMT 
put out a recommendation several years ago based off of some modeling that was done where they actually recommended dropping it down to 0.025 cc's per kilo per minute for a moderate lipemia. Um, or, and so it, there's some that have done that. I think currently what we recommend is just 0.25 cc's per kilo per minute for about 30 minutes. I think it's 34 when I did the math today. Um, and if you can make a linked order set where it's your bolus and then that with a max time, that's probably the best thing you could do. We've had some cases, gosh, one, um, I was just like, Oh, I wonder what those, the vasopressors this person is on. I should probably just, you know, log in and double check. I don't remember where I was going to go about to run an errand. Wanted to double check on this patient before. And I was like, huh, they're on interlipid. And they started on intralipid two hours ago, and they're still on intralipid. <laughs> Let's stop that. Um, and I think it was a four-plus lipemia. <laughs> I think that's just how the lab describes it, like unable to check labs. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, definitely avoiding that. Um, just do your bolus, do your short infusion, right? It's either going to work or it's not, in my experience. There's those dangerous words again. In my experience, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. Now you you mentioned glucagon, so let's let's get let's get into this because I feel like whenever any of these patients present, I think initially a lot of the providers instantly think of going to glucagon. I don't know if it's just because it's in the Pixis. It sounds like a give and forget kind of thing. I feel like it's one of the biggest battles quote unquote that we kind of have to fight on the on the front lines here so is there is there any role for this therapy now that we have all the other therapies we've talked about is it is it even worth giving that that one-time bolus um as we may be waiting for things or what are your thoughts on on glucagon maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe i i need to start using that a little more so there's really good theory behind it right so the idea is that um beta, and this is mostly around beta blockers right so i think the recommendations from um that uh guideline by st Ange basically said nothing about glucagon right there wasn't a recommendation to use it um but with beta blockers right beta blockers do one thing very very well they block beta right and they block beta one um there are some animal models where they've essentially given isoproteranol, right? Isoproteranol, pure beta-1 agonist. I mean, if your hospital has it, which my experience most don't because it's like $35,000 for a box of isoproteranol, um, it, won't even, it won't even overcome the beta blockade, right? So they're so good at blocking beta that um, in these animal models, they actually had to drive the dose of isoproteranol up so high that it now became a beta two agonist and then they died of vasodilatory death. Right. So not the ideal agent, but beta block, beta blockers block beta. Glucagon is also um, linked to the same G coupled receptor protein that then upregulates the dental cyclase, increases the cyclic AMP that goes at, Phosphorylase protein kinase A activates all of your different channels and kind of helps with that global chronotropy, inotropy that you would get from a beta agonist. You're just bypassing it, right? The data on it are um, 
mostly retrospective observational case series, um, as is most of toxicology literature, right? Um, and so it's not going to have great, like, outcomes data, no big RCTs. Um, I will generally recommend it. And to be honest, a lot of times it's done, like, the first dose is done before, before we even get called, right? Um, if we get a call from EMS, they'll often give it, right? They give a milligram, though, instead of five milligrams, which is what you really should be going for. Somewhere in that five milligram, you could maybe go up to 10 milligram range. Um, our uh, past fellow who graduated in, my gosh, a year ago at this point, um, he and I actually went through and audited our cases of patients who got glucagon. Um, and I think it was only like two of 50 cases progressed to high-dose insulin or real doses of vasopressors. Um, the biggest unknown was that they need glucagon. They've gotten away with just the low dose of a vasopressor. You know, probably. Um, it comes with some, it comes with a, a, a significant price tag, right? I, I don't know how much yours is. I think last time I looked, it was like $700 a milligram. Um, so if you're running the drip at 10 milligrams an hour, right, $7,000 an hour. But it's not just about the money. It's about the practicality of that, right? So where um, I do some of the moonlighting, they have 40 milligrams, maybe 50 milligrams of glucagon in the hospital, right? So if you're running a, an infusion at 10 milligrams an hour, you gave a 10 milligram bolus, that's four hours of treatment if you've got, you know, 50 milligrams, right? So you're probably going to run out of that pretty soon. Um, and if you can get away with not even ever starting it and just, you know, going with your vasopressors to get around some of it, I would just go with that. Um, yeah. Is there anything we can do to prevent the, um, what feels like unmanageable side effect of nausea and vomiting when we're doing these high dose glucagon treatments? Um, no <laughs> plastic, <laughs> right? <laughs> Protect the airway. <laughs> make sure that you are, uh, just make sure they're not going to vomit, loser, loser airway, um, and aspirate because, um, aspiration, especially on things like activated charcoal, not good, right? Um, you know, we, we didn't really talk about it, but with calcium channel blockers, um, especially your dihydropyridines, they're very, very vasodilatory. So a patient will have a mass of like 60 and be able to talk to you because they've got really good um, cerebral pressure, right? Um, so they're going to maintain their mental status, right? If they vomit though, and it's depressed at all, gosh, you just don't want them. Um, you don't want them to aspirate. That adds a whole new level on top of things. So, so then thinking of kind of like our, our refractory or kind of our like advanced cases, are there any like, are there any pharmacotherapy like or meds to keep in mind that that are kind of back of, you know, our back pocket? We're not using it for everybody, but for our really sick people, we can kind of we could kind of keep these in mind and use occasionally. Are there any are there any kind of examples of those if, if, if you even kind of understand what I'm getting at here? 
Yeah, I uh, I have a nice like eagle flag for the slide where I talk about these because it's always the the salvage like red, white, and blue. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this is your um, your red being hydroxycobalamin, your white being your interlipids. We already talked about that, and then your blue being your methylene blue. So. I love that. I love that so much because that you get that blue on your finger. It's not coming off if you've had to make methylene blue, like at the bedside or anything. Oh man. Yeah. And these are, um, sure. Right. This is one of those like Perry arrest. Theory is good. Does it pan out? Not really. Right. So methylene blue is thought to be a, uh, Nitric oxide scavenger, maybe it inhibits nitric oxide synthase. Um, amlodipine is a really, gosh, um, when we talk about the, the calcium channel blockers like dihydropyridines versus non-dihydropyridines, I hate amlodipine, right? And amlodipine is, causes the worst vasodilation and vasoplegia that you could possibly see. Um, and part of it is because it induces nitric oxide synthase, right? And these patients will be on massive doses of vasopressors and still just vasodilated, right? So part of the idea behind methylene blue is you can scavenge some of that nitric oxide. You can prevent some of the production. You can dose it one to two milligrams per kilogram as a bolus, milligram per kilogram per hour continuous. It's published in case reports, right? There isn't great data for it. Um, anywhere you go, um, most of, uh, most of the literature with these like salvage therapies, same thing with the interlipids were like, Oh, we gave, you know, all of these agents and, you know, methylene blue and intralipids and they recovered. Right. And then they get submitted. And so people say like, Oh, this has been done. Yeah, but sure. Your mileage may vary, I guess. Um, hydroxycobalamin, same thing, right? I think it's to be a uh, nitric oxide scavenger. I mean, it's used for vasoplegia um, after like cardiovascular surgery. The theory's good. I actually went looking for literature because somebody said, oh, there are a few papers. And I was like, I don't, I can't find anything worth writing home about. Um, one, uh, one toxicologist in a, like a critical care symposium said, it, uh, it, it'll increase their blood pressure by as long as you can hold your sphincter tight. So <laughs> we, we, can, we can bridge them through something, but don't, don't hang your hat on it. A, uh, a short-lived Band-Aid, in a sense. Yes, yes, yes very much so. And then um, please be transferring said patient. <laughs> um, so oh, I, I will say, sorry, I, I will say pacers, right? Um, generally difficult to get capture so uh, it's not really a farm pharmacy thing but it can be difficult to get them to capture so worth a shot yes again might not get anything out of it so so kind of building from that you've mentioned ecmo that some of these very severe patients uh, may ultimately end up being cannulated, are there other kind of um, advanced therapies for refractory cases where they're having, you know, really bad end organ damage?
Yeah. So um, our advanced therapies uh, in patients who are very, very ill are kind of limited, right? So we can do things to try to support organs that are failing. Um, you know, if you're going to try something like CRRT, which we've had patients that have ended up on CRRT for fluid removal, maybe collect correction of your electrolyte abnormalities. It's possible. I would say it's really difficult to pull fluid from somebody who's hemodynamically unstable though, right? And, and oftentimes if we're having that kind of discussion, we'll actually include our medical director who's both a toxicologist and nephrologist. And so he can really talk the talk about how to dialyze this very, very <laughs> ill patient. <laughs> His name's Josh King. Um, and he is one of, I think, two nephrologists, toxicologists. Um, so, yeah, I mean, CRT, you can try to remove some fluid, right? You can remove fluid other way. Um, there's actually a group, XTRIP, which is the extracorporeal treatment in poisoning, which is a group of toxicologists, nephrologists, emergency medicine, intensive care um, specialists that make recommendations for when you should do hemodialysis for poisoning, right? And they've tackled separate subgroups. Uh, and the one that they said for calcium channel blockers is, we do not recommend hemodialysis. Which makes sense because most of them are uh, have a fairly high volume of distribution, um, and so it's not going to be that helpful, right? Beta blockers, um, you can dialyze some of them. Um, you can use Santa or Satan, depending on uh, how you're approaching these cases. To remember, if you can dialyze it, uh, these are sodalol, esbutalol, simolol, etanolol, and natalol. Um, up until, you know, last week, my usual statement was, if you can dialyze a patient with a beta blocker overdose, you probably don't need to because they're probably not sick enough to um, need dialysis, right? If you're able to pull a bunch of fluid, you probably don't need to. Um, and then I got a call about a guy who would overdose on sodalol. And this, I think, was one of the, it's probably the first one that I've been involved with. This call starts at 10.30 p.m., as all good toxicology cases do. Um, that was 3 a.m. Those are the two times. It's like right after you fall asleep or when you're supposed to get up, right? So guy overdosed on Silwall. He originally had a heart rate in the 40s. Um, ED started him on Epi at 0.5 mics per kilo per minute, which is a good dose of epi, right? His blood pressure came up to like 130 systolic and his heart rate was 60. And I said, you know what? I've never said this before, but you should dialyze this guy. <laughs> and I said, look, so long stylizable. It has that combination of it induces bradycardia and it prolongs the QT. If there's another reason to go into torsades, I don't know what it is, other than a combo of bradycardia and prolonged QT. And uh, we got a call back. You know, we said, you stylize. Okay, we'll talk nephrology. Nephrology says, um, 
are you sure they're stable? Like, I'm not opposed to it, but he's kind of stable right now. I said, if nothing else, put in a line, right? He's stable, but his heart rate is 60 on 0.5 mics per kilometer of epi, right? His heart rate should be like 130 at least on that dose. And he's like, all right, sounds reasonable. And then um, he went into Torsad and that broke. And they said, all right, we'll dialyze him. <laughs> that, that, that sped everything up so quickly. <laughs> it went from not sure to, all right, here we go. Um, and he got dialyzed. He got dialyzed once. Um, and the thought was like, all right, if you can pull peak drug off, that's good, right? Um, the, the recommendation is really like if they've got, if they go into torsad, yes, dialyze, right? If they um, are stable though, right, you probably don't need to dialyze. If they don't have a bad AKI, you don't need to. Um, they were able to pace this guy up to like 90. He didn't go into torsads again after the run of dialysis. Um, and we said, yeah, you don't need to do it again, right? The half-life's only about 12 hours. It doubles if you have an AKI, um, but he didn't, fortunately, because he was never terribly hypotensive, right? But Sodalol is, uh, as, as Josh King calls it, poor Sodalol. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I love that name for it. <laughs> Um, so moving beyond that point, hemodialysis, right, which can be very difficult to do, and you can try to leave them positive, but no guarantees. Um, we'll move on to things like ECMO, right? And this is going to be generally VA ECMO or venoarterial ECMO. I mean, I don't know how many centers you guys have that can do it, but in Maryland, we have two, right? UMMC and Johns Hopkins, they can both do VA ECMO, um, a lot of these patients will have single organ failure, right? It's just the heart and it's acute. They have a good protoplasmic baseline, right? So they're almost ideal candidates to say, all right, we're going to take them and um, cannulate, right? Or just keep eyes on them and we'll do ECMO if they are moving to the point of very high doses of vasopressors, right? And then you can try to pull some of that fluid off as well. Um, These patients, if it's pure amlodipine, they're usually so vasoplegic and they don't have as much cardiac depression that you might not get as much out of it. A lot of our amlodipines have been like amlodipine, oh, and atenolol, or and metoprolol. So you're like, all right, that buys it for you, right? You've, you've got a lot of cardiac depression from those. Um, some things also you can try to pull drug off with MARS. Right, so the what is the molecular adsorbent recirculating system? Yep. Yeah. How many institutions can do Mars in the U.S.? Not many. Yeah, I think I heard at one time it was twenty. So that's kind of more than I was expecting, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, that was just from a news article that you know, Shock Trauma said that they got theirs if somebody was returning their machine because they weren't using it, so they just. You know, one of the few institutions, um, I, again, doesn't seem to help that much. A lot of these are not necessarily albumin bound. Maybe they're alpha one acid glycoprotein bound. Um, I don't know, I think there was one like model study where they did um, diltiazem and it pulled a little bit more. I don't know. I, I mean, even talking to Josh, who is a nephrologist, so he will dialyze 
things. He's not really even that excited about it. I'm not that excited about it. Every single time somebody's been like, should we march this drug? And I said, um, self-monastic glycoprotein, right? Or no, you can just dialyze it. Or no, you don't have to worry about it, right? Um, I think we had one where they tried it with low pyramide and the serum concentrations went up. So <laughs> it was a small up, but still it went up. <laughs> well, that was a kind of a really good walkthrough of, of all the therapies. If, if you've, if you've tried to, you know, dive through some of this literature itself, it can be a little convoluted to take a look at. So I really enjoy kind of the, the practical discussion on, on some of the, the, the pearls here on the management. Um, but let's go to our, to the final segment here. What would really happen medicine in the movies? So we have three movies that we're going to focus on in three scenes. Now for any of our young guns listening, these, especially the two comedies, they are classics. So if you haven't seen them, Put them on your list of movies um, to watch. Now, a couple PSAs. So I'll put the YouTube clips of, of these scenes that we're referencing on, on the Twitter page um, at Pharmacy to Dose, TO to Dose. But keep in mind, these are R-rated movies. So these clips are not suitable for work. And there's some things I don't condone, but it's the movie clips. So it's, it is what it is. All right. So an iconic scene, the movie Old School, Will Ferrell getting shot in the neck with a blow gun or a blow dart, right? So what do we think may have been in that dart? I guess medication-wise, that is. So most of your, most of your animal tranquilizers are um, nice combinations. So I actually used to work at a veterinary hospital, and I worked <laughs> in the pharmacy. And we used, um, we used things like ketamine, xylazine, detomidine, which is like really similar to dexmedetomidine, thiopental, acepromazine, which is a, a nice antipsychotic, right? So, so it's really just combinations of sedatives. I think some of the times now, carfentanil, right, is in, is in some of the tranquilizers for, for animals. But yeah, any, any nice rapid acting tranquilizer would, would really do what, he, what that did. So I don't know, maybe a combination of uh, ketamine and xylazine. Would you expect a similar, like the way the scene goes, he, um, he basically shoots himself in the neck. He starts hearing distorted sounds, feeling altered. What he's saying starts to sound altered. He's basically high. And then he falls down and then rages into a birthday celebration. So to me, I'm like, uh-oh, we, we went into the K-hole here. Um, but what is that? Is that a typical response of what you, from your experience with animal tranquilizer guns, is that what you would expect? <laughs> well, I, I am extensively experienced in this as I have tranquilized zero animals in my life <laughs> in person. I have actually, I will, I will say I have actually poked myself with a needle that I used to draw up euthanol, which is for euthanizing animals. Um, I'm clearly still alive and able to talk, so I didn't get too much of a dose. Um, but imagine being really, really drunk really fast, right? <laughs> so you get into that like incredible inebriation and then it's like that disinhibition stage right so 
you get to that, oh, maybe at baseline, I'm kind of really agitated. And he was going wild the whole time, right? So then he just got really disinhibited, got to the point of where he was just raging through the party and then like blacked out into the pool. And that was the part where he like tipped him over the edge. So, I mean, I buy it. This is probably the most accurate thing you're going to see on TV in medicine ever, right? This is everything else is just all made up. This one, though, I like it. I buy it. And he gives the icon- iconic quote I, I like you, man, but you're crazy. I like you, but you're crazy. Um, now, the other thing that I think is so funny in these movies is people will just will hit the jug. They, they claim to hit the jugular just from from literally like five feet away from their neck. And as, as someone who has literally watched some of the most seasoned people try to place IVs, um, that would be one of the more incredible shots, um, actually just randomly getting it right in your neck and not just extravasating all of this stuff into your soft tissue space. <laughs> Right. And the needle on those things is like, I don't know, two inches long. It's, and you're not coming at it from an angle, right? I mean, that scene, it's just like sticking right out. Like, that thing is in his trachea. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's exactly right. Maybe that was the deal. Maybe it ended up like into his, uh, into his lungs, right? So that was why it took so long is he actually just inhaled that whole go. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. So we actually started with a fairly accurate representation here. Okay. I like this. Now, I will buy that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, from the moment I saw this movie, it's, it's bothered me. You know, I'm, uh, the, the movie here we're talking about is Knives Out. Um, and spoiler alert, FYI, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert here. Um, but basically, there's the ending explanation where. Um, the patriarch was supposed to get a massive dose of ketorolac and instead gets a massive dose of morphine um, leading to his unfortunate demise. Now, just starting off there, is anyone ever getting 100 milligrams of IV Toradol? And it seems like nightly. Um, not on purpose. <laughs> I'm sure there are cases, right? This is, we are this. I do deal with poisoning and I'm sure somebody has actually gotten a hundred milligrams, but I was, I mean, my, my wife is also a pharmacist. We were talking about it and it was like, it doesn't even come in that vial size, right? When you get 60 is your biggest vial. Like, no, mm-hmm. nobody's doing that. Right. Especially not once a day. Yeah. I, I, if only they could have consulted somebody for a small fee to say, does this number make sense? Right, spend a hundred bucks, man. Talk to a pharmacist, talk to a physician, talk to anybody, and say like, "Can we get a hundred milligrams of Toralax?" Especially when it's like hundred dollars. It's the pivotal scene. It's not just some throwaway in the beginning. It's like kind of an important part of the whole movie. Right, right. I mean, I have no conflicts of interest. I'm open to some conflicts of interest. Maybe a movie consulting. Right. If you want to pay me to do that, I will do that. And yeah, I, I mean, geez, nobody's getting a hundred milligrams of Toralac. Can't get it. So in the scene, right, they, they realized that he was given a hundred milligrams of morphine. Um, and he asks, so what happens? 
So I'm going to ask you that. So if Jimmy, if we accidentally, someone's prescribed three milligrams of morphine and we give them a hundred, what should we expect to happen? Um, so somebody is going to write an error report for sure. Right. And then some med poor med safety pharmacist is going to have to figure out what happened and how you gave a hundred milligrams of morphine. That's, that's later though. Um, but they're going to stop breathing is, is really the issue, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, and it's going to take some time. I, um, so I live in, I live, uh, outside of Baltimore and the way that I get into the office is I take the train. Um, and if you weren't aware, Baltimore is an opioid city, right? People love their opioids. Um, and one of the places that people sometimes snort their fentanyl is, on the train across the aisle from me. Um, and so I usually keep an eye on them to make sure that they're still breathing. Right. Um, and it usually takes like five minutes or so to get a good nod going on. Um, they not stop breathing. Um, so, so it can take a little bit of time, right? Um, morphine a little bit slower, right. Has takes time to get into the brain, which is why people love or prefer Hydromorphone, right? Hydromorphone, morphone, ultra lipophilic, rapidly gets into brain, or it's really similar to something like heroin, right? But the um, morphine, not as quick to get into the brain, doesn't give that same rush and that same peak and high. Um, so maybe 20 minutes, you're starting to see CNS depression. Five, 10 minutes, you stop breathing. A few more minutes, you, you know, start to develop. Uh, anoxic brain injury. Um, I'm not sure any IRB would approve an RCT on this type of study. The ethics called so, on you. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not even sure they would make it past the administrative screening period. <laughs> like, they'd be like, "You're saying you might kill them. Are you sure you want to do this study? <laughs> like, how are you going to get this funded? That's the real question." Um, but yeah, I, I mean, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, that's all it takes. Right. Especially after a big dose of morphine. Um, I will say we've seen, Oh, and I, uh, this, this happened a long time ago. So it's totally, totally open to tell the story. Um, this guy got ordered a milligram of, uh, hydromorphone. That was the intent, right? One milligram. He was on like the post post-surgery, like, um, OBS area, not pack you just like OBS. Um, accidentally clicks on the order set for one milligram per milliliter continuous infusion. The like room numbers really close to the ICU. They're like side by side. So it was like room 211 was ICU. Room 210 was OBS, not ICU. So gets verified, gets made as a bag. Doc tells the nurse, this is one milligram of, I ordered a milligram of Dilaudid right? Gets hung to gravity, doesn't scan like to say like there's a rate and just goes to gravity and got 58 milligrams in, I don't know how fast can you run 100 cc's wide open, right? Um, 58 milligrams before he actually arrested. I mean, it was fast. They got him back. He got, he got naloxone, no bad outcome from it, but it was, I don't know, sub 10 minutes before that happened. Um, this was hydromorphone, right? Morphine, not nearly as fast as, uh, as an uptake. So 
Yeah, it can be quick. All right. So not as accurate as our first example, but we're not completely inaccurate here. There are some, some things that are no. legitimate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think the morphine would do the trick. I think the morphine would do the trick. I mean, depends on your tolerance, but nobody's getting 100 milligrams IV, right? What is that, like 300 milligrams of PO morphine? Nobody's doing that as a single dose. I mean, maybe once. Nobody's ordering it, hopefully. <laughs> you can also tell how rich this guy is because instead of giving all these available oral, he's just got a pick line getting IV meds every night. So that's, that is, that's how you know he's, uh, he's got a little bit of money. Um, I don't know. I think I think I'd rather like a PO route, man. <laughs> I know I really want to pick. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Um, okay. The last one. What a what a classic here. Wedding crashers. Um, the 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 scene where they give where um, Owen Wilson's character puts eye drops into. Bradley Cooper, Bradley Cooper's character's water. So the, the scene before they're talking like, oh, that's too extreme. I don't know if we should do this. And then Bradley Cooper's telling this hilarious story where he's talking about rescuing seals and he does the seal impression. And Owen Wilson's like, okay, give me the eye drops. So he, they end up finding him later, basically on the toilet. He like leaves and runs away from the dinner. So if we were to actually do this and put eye drops in someone's water, what would actually happen? Not that. <laughs> so most of our eye drops um, have tetrahydrosoline, right? You can also get nephazoline. Um, and these are gosh, let's get real nerdy, imidazolines, right? And so they function on the imidazoline receptor and the alpha-2, really similar to clonidine, right? And so clonidine is a drug that causes pretty significant bradycardia, mild hypotension, right? You picture a patient whose heart rate's like 40, blood pressure's 90 systolic, they're kind of CNS depressed, they might respond a little bit to, you know, being shaped and pushed and, you know, um, maybe a good sternal rub, but like on the verge of looking like an opioid, right? Maybe some respiratory depression as well. Not on the toilet by any means, right? Um, there are actually several cases of people that have been um, convicted of poisoning somebody else because they did that same thing. Um, and I think, I can't remember if anybody died or any adults um, but there was definitely people were accused of poisoning and, and convicted of it. Um, and I will say clonidine poisoning, right? We didn't really talk about it. It's one year bradycardic differential drugs, but, um, does really well with supportive care, not necessarily this degree of supportive care, but if you're just at home, that's, you know, potentially lethal, right? I think there are a couple deaths every year, um, reported to poison centers from it, but, not diarrhea, not diarrhea. Please don't put eye drops in your like friends' cups to try to make them poop their pants. If you're really going to do that, I don't condone this. Please don't use any of this knowledge for evil, but um, sugar-free gummy bears, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think everybody's been there with sugar-free gummy bears. Uh, <laughs> best reviews on Amazon. 
Yeah, go to the five pound sugar free. The five pound sugar free gummy bear reviews on Amazon are absolutely hysterical. That's a really good tip for the listeners. You could pretty get you could get pretty lost reading through those, but that'll give you the diarrhea that he had. Not this. Um, we have had some cases with like little kids getting into it and sucking on it, and and actually when I called or when I got the call, they were like, "Well, he's just gonna have diarrhea, right?" We've seen wedding crashers. <laughs> um, no, that's not what happens. The kid actually has to go to the hospital, has to get monitored. You know. Um, but yeah, it's uh, some of those OTC drugs, man. They can be they can be scary. If you, yeah. And that was the uh, first iteration of what would really happen medicine in the movies. So Jimmy, there I'm. I don't know about you, but the the medicine mistakes always stand out to movies and in TV. So we're gonna have to have you back. Not only because there's so many tox topics that are relevant to critical care and emergency medicine, but we have to revisit this incredible segment and bring you back to let the public know what would, what would actually really happen in, uh, in these scenarios. So, um, Jimmy, I, I really appreciate you coming on, um, imparting some of this like awesome knowledge on us. Um, and reminder for everybody, uh, Jimmy is on Twitter at Leonard J B R X. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, you have to end this talk with call the poison center 800-222-1222, right? Always available 24-7-365, right? Staffed mostly by pharmacists and nurses. There's always backup along with that as well, right? We are actively involved. We will call and follow up, right? We actually work with people to help build your order sets, right? If you want to help build an order set for something like, let us know, right? And we will, we will be, we would love to be involved. Um, and again, if you have poisoning cases, call, we can offer guidance. We can be way more nuanced beyond anything that can ever be written on paper. Um, but yeah. And also, um, so the, that's my Twitter. I'm not as active on it. You can always follow the MTC tox tidbits. So that's the Maryland poison center. We put out, um, our talk tidbits every month, which is just a short newsletter. And then we do things like, you know, new papers that are out and, um, you know, interesting, interesting things that we find in the literature. And we'll definitely, we'll definitely have that, that Twitter handle along with, along with yours on some of, on some of the posts and things like that. So people will be able to easily, easily find both of those. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Thanks again, Jimmy. Um, and to the friends of the pod, um, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. As always, uh, Pharmacy to Dose, T.O. to Dose on social media, uh, Pharmacy to Dose at gmail.com. If you have guest ideas, um, topics, anything like that, please reach out. Um, and until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. <laughs>